I was uh, having a, a wardrobe malfunction earlier, so I had to adjust my microphone. So when I was walking down, I got to hear everybody singing, and you were singing it out. That was great. I was a little disappointed that the worship team sounded great even without me on the stage. I was... <laughs> guess I'm not the secret ingredient that I thought I was. <laughs> Just kidding. No, no, no. Everyone's going to send nice emails. You're still important to us, Pastor Brian. All right. How many of you grammar folks were totally wigged out when you see lowercase letters where they're not supposed to be? All right. I'm going to ask you to step forward in faith and to push on. This is uh, what I'm going to call... I was just thinking about this a second ago. I was like, oh, that's right, because I never get to see the the lyrics from where I stand. And we're going to call it worship punctuation. No, not punctuation. Worship grammar, because uh, you'll notice everything's lowercase except for when we come to a name of God, which is then capitalized. The U, when we're singing vertically to the Lord, is capitalized. So not our idea, but it's something that we saw along the way and said, oh, that kind of makes sense. So I know some of you are going to be trying to worship and twitching at the same time. But to us, it's just another way of expressing to the Lord the I in this worship service is minimal. You are the one that's capital. Can I say it like that? All right. How many of you that grew up in church? I feel like I'm starting with all these survey questions, but if you grew up in church or in Sunday school, you remember the little song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful. Little eyes, what you see. Thank you, finally. A little participation. And then, of course, because it's Sunday school, it's repetition. We could go to, you know, be careful little feet where you go. And I don't remember if there was be careful little ears what you hear, right? And does anybody remember? This is the part I couldn't remember. Do you remember, oh, be careful little tongue what you say? Or is it mouth or something like that? Because I was thinking there was probably something in my subconscious that knew that verse was in there because that's what I started thinking about when I was coming to this next section of being able to teach, and that is how we communicate to one another. And I was thinking about that song, Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say, because the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Now, that song is very important to teach at an elementary level that, that God is present, that there's nothing that we do that escapes his view. But as we get older, our theology should progress beyond just okay, I better not do this because he'll see it and be angry with me instead because that becomes that creates sort of a, a life of blocking out the bad and only trying to robotically do the good. But our, our Christian experience should be more about, Lord, what is it about me that wants to let my feet go to the places that if you saw you would be unhappy with? What is it about me that wants to, when my tongue wants to share something or say something that probably wouldn't please you? What, what's going on? with me that I would even want to do that? Why is that struggle there? When we start asking those questions of the Lord, that's when the Christian life takes on a new flavor. That's when our growth in the Lord starts to accelerate. Instead of just the external, Lord, help me not to do bad things. Help me to only do good things. It becomes, Lord, help change why I desire to do the things that I want to do. Help change my motivation. Help change the things that I, I, I know in my, in my heart and in my head I should be offering to you, but for some reason I just trip myself up and I can't get out of my own way. 
Last week, as we were talking a little bit more about being capable or able to teach, if you're new to faith, what we have a tendency to do is uh, to teach in a series uh, in exponential, uh, exponential, we just teach till it just goes on and on and on, expositional uh, style and things. And what we've been doing is kind of breaking off into more of a topical format, but launching from a passage of scripture in 1 Timothy 3 that is addressing good leadership in the church and saying that one of the qualities or characteristics of a good leader is that he would be able to teach. And so we've been camped out on that phrase, able to teach, for the last few weeks. And last week we talked about in order to be a good teacher, you have to plant your tree by the rivers of water. We saw that in Psalm 1, that if we plant ourselves next to nourishment and life first, remember that warning that comes on the airplane when the oxygen masks drop. It says, parents, put yours on first because your kids are going to need your assistance. And you won't have the ability to give them assistance if you're not giving yourself oxygen first. Same principle if we're going to be teachers in the context of of, uh, discipling and making disciples in the church is we have to be feeding on the life source first. That's the the very basic but still profound analogy that's given to us in a tree, where that tree that's planted by rivers of water produces fruit so that other people can say, well, that apple looks good, or that fruit looks nourishing, and it actually does taste good, and it actually is good for feeding the body. And so that's what we're trying to produce in the Christian life. We also said that in order to be a good teacher, you should develop an infectious personality. And we talked about how um, in, in Hebrews, the scripture says that you and I should find ways to spur one another on to love and good deeds. It was that kind of kicking them, you know, like the horse and saying, yeah, yeah, get going, get going. That motivation. What are we doing to motivate for motivating one another to do the things that pleases the Lord? Are we really trying to evaluate how effective we're being at that? You know, I've noticed that even the most introvert person can have an infectious personality when you hit the topic they care about. You ever notice that? That dude won't talk to anybody about anything. And then all of a sudden you find his sweet spot. You find the thing that he's really passionate about. You can't shut the guy up. It happens like that. And so it becomes a matter of, Lord, make that my sweet spot. Make the things that please you, the things that I care about, and the things that if somebody just taps into that... You can't shut me up. It's infectious to be around. And we also talked about a good teacher is one that teaches from movement. What are you going to do with what I've shared with you? Rather than just saying, okay, I feel better, but we spent some time together. I, I, I transferred some truths. The student seems to acknowledge that they've downloaded those truths, and now we're ready to go our separate ways. That good teaching always produces good action. And so a couple more aspects that I'd like to hit on before we move on in a few weeks is, is a, kind of a combo platter here because there are two different aspects that I want to address, but the second one's going to be all kind of filling in through, through the first. And, and the first one is that in order to be a good teacher, you have to be able to evaluate how you communicate. To be able to look yourself in the mirror, to hear your own voice, to hear the things that you say and say, am I communicating effectively? You know, so often we say things like, well, that's just me. That's just who I am. And you're just going to have to deal with it. We usually have an attitude that it's up to the other person to either receive what I'm giving them or not. It's up to you. 
But a good teacher, somebody who's truly able to teach, takes a step back and say, well, is there something wrong in the communication? Is there something lost in the translation that I'm not saying it the right way or I'm not saying it the right time or in the right tone? We have to be willing to communicate more effectively, but we also have to go for the heart. And I'll try to explain what that means. So those are the two aspects we're going to be looking at in the few moments we have together. How to, to be willing to improve our communication, but to do so in a way that goes for the innermost us. In Matthew 15, Jesus was with his disciples and getting ready to eat their dinner or break their bread or however you want to put it. And um, they didn't do the traditional hand washing that the Pharisees that were looking, these are the, the rule keepers, these are the guys that basically slap you on the wrist or worse if you break the Jewish tradition. And you go against the law at the time. And so the disciples were getting together and, and they were, they've been ministering, they've been traveling, they've been doing all these things. So it, it, you kind of get the impression that when they saw bread, they were hungry and they were ready to eat it. So they just went, went to it. And the Pharisees uh, uh, start complaining about that. And they say, you guys are, are blowing every rule in the handbook here. You know, it says right here in chapter 3, verse 4 in section A, that you're supposed to clean your hands before you break bread. Jesus, doing what he always was the master of doing, turns the spotlight right back on the accusers and, and pinpoints an aspect of their inconsistency in front of everybody. They were making a public spectacle of their complaint, so he was going to make a public correction. And it isn't so much the correction that we're going to focus on this, this morning, but what the, the point that he actually gets to. The correction was something along the lines of, you guys go around and you bro boast to know the law. And in particular, you know that you should honor your father and your mother. You teach it and preach it everywhere you go. But yet there are traditions that you've invented, you men, have invented that do just the opposite of honoring your father and mother. And you say, well, as long as we're doing it for the Lord, then it's all that counts. And I won't get into all the details of that. But the point is, Jesus is saying, you guys are also inconsistent with what you're teaching. So don't just put the spotlight on us thinking because we didn't wash our hands. Jesus actually says, turns to the people and he, he quotes Isaiah. He says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, they know what you're supposed to do before you eat. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And that's where we pick up in verse 10 as well. It says, After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. It's, if you ate with what you would consider religiously dirty hands eating your bread, that's not what's going to make you dirty. But what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, we're getting our biology lesson for the morning, and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth, those are a little harder to get rid of, is what Jesus is saying here. They come from the heart, and those things defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that is not what defiles the man. So you see, Jesus, using that one little example, turns the whole thing around and says, you guys are always focused on the external. Why? Because people are impressed 
by the external. They're afraid of the external. When the Pharisees walked on the scene, there was, there was a, an authoritative presence. And Jesus just cutting to the chase embarrassed them in front of their onlookers. And you see that in so many instances where Jesus challenges them, it seems to go right to the heart of the embarrassment factor. But what Jesus is saying is our tongues or what we communicate reveal what's really going on inside of us. And being able to teach means that what we are teaching and why we're teaching it are more important than just how we teach it. So if we fix the problem of our hearts, which is the real us, it's not just an emotional thing. I always feel the need to stop on that because we're so used to, especially we got Valentine's Day coming up, men, public service announcement, Valentine's Day is coming up. Uh, we always we have a tendency to boil down heart to an emotional response, something that is a tearjerker, something that makes you feel something inside. And that's certainly a part of it. But who the real us really is, what really motivates us on the inside, that is what our heart is, biblically speaking. So if we fix the problem of our hearts first, then what we say will actually have the impact that God wants from us and for his people. So this morning, we're not going to spend our time talking about just the things that the world could challenge. You know, the world system of education, they can teach us how to communicate better. And there's nothing wrong with that. They can teach you how to prepare better for the way people listen, uh, take uh, opportunity at the right time to have maximum impact. You can hear lots of good speaking, presenting lessons from people that have no claim whatsoever to believe in the Lord. So we're going to do what the Bible does and take it a, a notch deeper, take it a step deeper and stop it at its source. Start the, stop the problem at its source. So we're not just going to focus on improving speech. We're going to be challenging the teacher to surrender their heart to the Lord and then passing that focus, that surrender on to other people. In order to do that, I think we have to look and see why our speech or why our tongue is so important. And for that, we're going to get our teaching from James chapter 3 this morning. In James chapter 3, uh, James starts right off by saying, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I hope you're hearing a little contradiction in this. For three weeks now, we've been talking about you should all consider yourselves teachers. You should all be finding your student. You should all be discipling somebody else. And then all of a sudden, James comes in and kind of pulls the rug out from under me and says, hey, you guys shouldn't all be striving to be teachers. You should kind of take it easy on that whole teacher thing just a little bit. Why? Because as a teacher, you will incur a stricter judgment. There's a heavier weight on the things you say if you consider yourself a teacher. So what we've been talking about in 1 Timothy 3 is a life of balance. We've been talking about how the leader in the church or the leaders in the church should have a, a kind of a balance that keeps them on the, the balance beam and not being swayed from one end to the, to the other too quickly or blown about by the wind. And that in order to have balance, you have to have some conflicting views on both sides and weigh those things out. And James is giving us that conflicting view a little bit. We've been talking about teach, teach, teach. And I've been trying to rally the troops. All right, we're going to go out and we're going to disciple other people. And James says, slow it down just a second. Before you can run out there gung-ho, you have to understand something. That if you go out there and represent the teachings of Jesus Christ, you will incur a stricter judgment. 
And that gives us balance because so often in churches we're looking for any warm body who's willing to help out. Remember last week we talked about how we have a tendency to say, well, we've got a hole in Sunday school for sister so-and-so is available and even though she's never seen a flannel graph before and she couldn't pick out Joseph from Moses, we're going to put her in front of the kids and say the Holy Spirit will take over from there. Rather than saying, how are we training our teachers? How are we preparing them to deal in skill with the Word of God? And there's some time that's needed for that kind of thing. And so James is underscoring that warning, saying, take it easy. You have to understand. It doesn't mean don't become a teacher, but only move forward with the understanding that you will incur a stricter judgment if you don't take these things seriously, if you do not teach well. Now, we're going to read a fairly large portion of, the, uh, of, of chapter 3 going on here, and we're not going to break down every component. We won't have uh, any time for that, and it's not really appropriate to even say we're going to spread this out for many weeks to come. So we're just going to read this, uh, these couple of, of, of paragraphs in, uh, in total. Picking up in verse 2, it says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says... He's a perfect man or a mature man. Don't necessarily think he's without error. But he's able to bridle the whole body as well. James is saying, if you can control your tongue, everything else will seem to follow in your life. Your priority should be in in what you say. He continues, he says, now if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. He's not being strong at all, is he? For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. That's the easy part is what James is saying. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. Does that sound like what Jesus was quoting from Isaiah? And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. James is telling us that our tongues are useful for direction. Just like the bit in the horse's mouth or the rudder in the ship. It's useful for changing course. It's it's beneficial. It's not saying, the passage isn't saying, so just don't speak. So we don't get ourselves in trouble. He's saying, be so careful to use your tongue for direction. And these are, are images for us of great power and strength. And you think, I, I know some of you are comfortable around horses, but I am still not comfortable around horses. They look down at me and they're, and they're beautiful and they're gentle. And they, I just, but I just think one of them is just going to go, get out of here and step on me. Or their teeth are this big, you know, and I just, I want to pet them and I'm just afraid they go, you know, I'm going to be like, stop it. So horses still kind of freak me out. 
There, there's beauty and majesty and power and strength to them, but I'm pretty intimidated by them. They're such a, a large, powerful animal. And if you've seen them racing or seen them do their, their tricks or workhorses pulling the plow and doing all those things, you have to marvel at the strength of the horse. And yet there's this one tiny little piece that we never think of unless we're the one actually working with the horse. When's the last time you saw a horse race? I know Christians don't watch horse races, but because um, there's something very evil about watching this animal go around the track. So um, just don't bet on them. Give that money to the church. That's what the Lord wants you to do with it. So next time you're watching these beautiful, thunderous creatures run around the track, go, where's that little thing in their mouth? And try to see if you can spot it. See if you can even tell when it's actually being engaged and moved. The movements and everything are just so slight, especially moving at that speed. So these, these great beasts of power are being controlled by something so tiny is the point that James is making. Something that you and I give no appreciation for. It's just a bit. It's just something they chomp on. The same way the next time you see, and I've had a chance to see those giant cruise ships and everything, it's like a, it's a floating city. But you don't think about when you're out there in the middle of nowhere, what's steering that because it's got so many you know, things to just distract you and the whole crew and all these kinds of things. And yet those ships are operating by something in proportion much, much smaller than they are. And do we give the rudder credit for being so important in the process? No, we don't think about it. And that is the problem with our communication is we very rarely give attention to the most powerful member of our communication, which is our tongue. So that's why James has to give us the warning and say, as good as it can be for guiding and directing, you have to understand that it is also capable of great destruction. And he gives us two great images that usually start off to be something small and turn out to be totally disastrous. You know, you think about where some of the great fires in our history have started. They usually, you see all the, the wildfires out west and they pinpoint it to somebody at a campsite who wasn't careful to put out their fire. And you think about it, something that makes the news and the, the flames are jumping and the people are evacuating and it started off with someone trying to cook a hot dog. It's pretty amazing to think about how small destruction can start. And think about poison, you know, a tiny little snake, sometimes not so tiny, but tiny enough. Sometimes the deadliest snakes are the little skinny ones. They're still freaky looking and their eyes are different colors and they're weird and all that stuff. Let's not talk about this for too long. But one tiny little bite, what does the poison do? It spreads. It doesn't just stay necessarily in the one area. It starts to debilitate the entire body and eventually starts to threaten the life of the person bit. James is giving us a powerful, powerful illustration under the presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Paul backs it up in Galatians 5. He says, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed as well. Other people will destroy you back. We constantly underestimate the future destruction of our words. We slough it off with, oh, I just had to get that off my chest. Or I didn't really mean what I said. I was just kidding anyway. And we have a tendency to think that somehow we didn't just give a venomous bite. Or we didn't just leave our campfire burning and walk away unattended. That somehow, even if it's days later, becomes something that's much more destructive. In our minds, in our communication, we try to tell each other, oh, that's all right, I forgive you. Or I know that was just the alcohol talking. Or I know you're under a lot of stress. And then we try to be big about it, but later on it kind of 
resurfaces in our hearts and our minds. We start dwelling on, I can't believe they said that to me. And so then it becomes the discipline of the believer to say, oh, I said I forgive, so I'm just going to keep forgiving even in the present moment. But, but it comes back and it's trying to devour. It's trying to burn like a fire. It's trying to spread like a poison. The things we say outside of the Spirit of God are often driven, I could almost say always driven, by what's inside of us, the real us. And those statements often start like a small fire or a short burst of poison that will eventually destroy the relationships around us. I have an illustration for you that we're going to watch. It's humorous. I hope you find it humorous, but still very profound uh, in its illustration. So let's watch this video. Like the small little spark that starts a blaze that you cannot contain. How quickly do you expose your heart through frustration or harsh language? Do you go down roads that later on you wish you could come back from, but somehow you know that you've gone too far to fully recover? Are you starting to recognize where that's coming from? That's why Jesus says it doesn't matter how much we clean our hands, how religiously prepared we are for any activity. The life of the believer is one that allows the heart to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how that applies to those of us willing to teach is that the one who is able to teach has a healthy fear of the potential destruction of the tongue. It freaks us out a little bit how much damage we can cause by what we say. A person who's able to teach has a willingness to face stricter judgment for how they speak and in fact looks at that as somehow some kind of motivation to stay on the straight and narrow, knowing that I'll stand before him to give an account of the things that I've said. The one who is able to teach has a goal to use their speech to direct others towards God's will for their lives. And so that's why we have to start with how important is the tongue. Now, understanding how important it is, you have to understand how dangerous it is as well. If you're going to set out on this path to become a teacher, I would suggest asking a couple of questions as often as you can think to ask them. The first is, what does the Lord say? What does He say? And in order to know that, you have to know what He says in His Word. The the Lord speaks so clearly through His Word for our lives. So many people are looking for an extra word from the Lord when He said so much in His Word that we don't yet apply. And so we come back to the Word and we say, okay, if I just say, okay, what does the Lord say, then I've accomplished half of the battle of becoming a teacher. The second part in order to apply that is, now how do I say that to them? Them being anybody that the Lord's put in our proximity to lead and to be a disciple. And so if you're going to ask, what does he say? Have the understanding that you and I come as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. In in other words, in 2 Corinthians 5, the scripture says, Therefore, in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness 
of God in him. Paul is saying, understand that you are sent with a message from the king. You are his ambassador. Even Jesus, the king of kings, gave us the example of coming and saying, I did not come here for my will, but God's will, my father's will be done. He says that for our example. So in, in, a, in kind of a negative sort of way or a negative application, you and I have to say if we're going to be the ambassadors for Jesus Christ, then we cannot show up on the scene with our own agenda. We can't show up saying, I've got some things I really got to get off my chest. There's a life that I've tried to create for myself and you, pal, are messing it up. We don't show up with our own agenda. If we are really representing the mission of the king, we say, what did he say? What's his mission? Now, that's sort of the negative side of things, but on the positive side of things, representing the ambassador is when you and I share the message of the king of kings, we're not the bad guy, and nor is Jesus the bad guy, but in our own language, we make him the heavy. The word of God is what people need to live by. And so when we come and present the word of God and we're speaking truth according to the scriptures, we're not the bad guy. We're delivering the message that the king sent us to deliver. We're representing the mission. Now, we have to be careful with this, and that's why it's hard to, to not spend a lot of time on this subject because that just fueled some people's fire. You're going to go home and say, so as long as I quote scripture, I'm all set, right? Because if God said, wives, you need to submit to your husbands, then I'm going to go home and tell her that. Because the scriptures do, do say that. Can I give you a little bit of advice? Husbands, you are not the preacher of that sermon. If your wife needs to hear that sermon, and if you're new here, you're thinking, here we go. Church is talking about putting the wives back in the Stone Ages. It's not what we're getting at. But if your wife needs to hear that sermon because she's not respecting the authority of the home or she's not helping uh, fulfill the mission, that is not your message to give her. And you don't even go around her back to manipulate that. What you do is you say, Lord, if she needs to hear this truth, Please deliver it to her. Bring someone alongside of her that she'll trust and that she'll hear. And that's how the Lord will work that out. If your husband is being a complete jerk, you don't say, well, as long as it's scripture, husbands love your wives. I'm going to go home and teach my husband. You're supposed to. Guess what? Peter also says that's not a sermon you should be preaching either, wives, because he's going to go, man, I don't hear you. Partly because that's the way we are as guys, but also that's just also the way God wired us. And so we don't do a lot based on lecture. We do a lot based on what we see and how we experience and go through it. So sometimes you need another man to come along with your husband and to show him what that looks like in a marriage. And this is why we're talking about one-on-one -on -one discipleship as being the key. So yeah, it's important to represent the, the message of the king, but you also have to think about, am I the most effective person to deliver this message? Should I submit to the Lord's plan to have maybe somebody else deliver that message when he's ready? It takes the pressure off of us being the heavy or the bad guy. We are sharing the message of the king instead of our own. So do you ever stop and think about the fact, and this should probably freak you out just a little bit, that the words that you're sharing in every, any given moment could be a direct appeal from God to the person you're speaking to? Now think about this. You might be sharing something that that person needed to hear and they might not even tell you. They might not say, oh, you just changed my life. It may haunt them a, next, a month from now. It may come up later on. But the words that you say might have such weight that the Lord's going to use them like a tool in their life to start transforming their heart. 
That should scare you. That should give you a healthy respect for carrying the weight of God's Word. But at the same time, you should be looking for that. My caution is don't get carried away. Don't get always caught in the trap of saying, God told me what you needed to hear. And saying it as though it were verbatim from God. If you don't know that, tread lightly. But be willing to share the truths of God with people around you and let Him guide and direct the pieces that that person is supposed to hear. God speaks through things that are accessible to all of us. He shares truth that you and I can grab. So as we continue to share the words of Christ, as we continue to, to uh, use the tongue as the matter of, as a means of communication that is most effective and we understand the potential destruction, it's going to cause us to start focusing on some very trustworthy concepts. There are major themes from the gospel that if you just said, for the rest of my life, I'm going to get better at sharing these themes over and over again and in different ways and in, in an applicable format, then you'll never go wrong. Jesus said from the beginning that living for ourselves is empty. And the folks that you're going to be encountering are weary and are burdened with a rough life or with the potential, with the impact of their sin or the sin of somebody else. And Jesus said, if you take your burdens to me and you lay them down at my feet, I will give you rest for your soul. He also says that there's forgiveness for the repenter, the one who, who says, I, I can't fix my own sins. I know that I'm guilty of them and I want to turn and walk away from them and live differently than all of that, that there is forgiveness for the repenter. And then he promises us that there is freedom from that life of sin. As that repenter walks away, they feel the weight just falling off them, the chains are letting go. If you focus your life on getting better at communicating that message in a lot of different contexts, in a lot of different scenarios, you will not go wrong. I want to say it a little bit differently. Uh, author Paul Tripp in his book, War of Words, uh, talks about our ambassadorship like this. He says, speaking as an ambassador means speaking in a way that represents the mission, that is, the will and purposes of the king. It means asking, do my words capture what is valuable to the Lord? So that's the mission. He says it also means considering the methods of the king. This means asking, how would the Lord respond to this person in this situation? Could you imagine how your life would change? And I literally mean change instantly, as in the minute you are dismissed from here and how you speak to the next person. Now I'm really making everyone self-conscious. If what you stopped and thought about was, how would the Lord speak to this person? Then you get in the car. Then you go through the drive-thru, now I'm making you hungry. Then you get home. Tomorrow you might go to work, or you might get the kids out of bed, or you might do whatever. How would the Lord respond to this person in this situation? You're thinking about the methods of the king. Finally, speaking as an ambassador requires thinking about the character of the king. Representing the Lord is not only a matter of right goals and right methods, but the right attitude as well. Well, I guess I'm supposed to send you a blessing because that's what Jesus would do if he were here. I mean, people can see through the attitude pretty quick, right? Even if you're saying the right thing, doing it in the wrong attitude loses all the impact. So if you're saying, what does he say? He'll give you the answer for what he says. But if you're saying, how am I supposed to say it? He'll start giving you the steps for that too. First off, you want to say it with clarity. You want to go for the heart. 
That's where Jesus' example comes through for us. You know, we could have played around with, well, the reason why we don't really think it's that important to wash hands is because, you know, traditionally speaking, that's starting to die out. And this is all. And besides, if you look at it, you know, chemically and biologically, it's not the end of the world. If you, he didn't waste any time trying to explain why they were doing that thing. He saw what was going on in the heart of the Pharisees and exposed that. You and I can develop that skill as we pray and we ask the Lord for it and we look for that ability to go to the heart of the matter. We go, we speak with others with clarity, but we speak with grace and humility. Here comes the balance. Because if we're going for the heart, if we're going for the jugular at every turn, we come across as just harsh and, and, and arrogant and manipulative. But when we go with a grace that says, okay, I'm about to share something with somebody that I myself have needed a lot of work in. Or I go with the humility of saying, I really have no reason being the one sharing this with the Lord. I should be squashed like a bug and sent to hell right now. But the Lord in His mercy is using me as an instrument in this person's life. And the more we start having that approach, the more we start having that attitude as we approach others, the more it becomes just a position or a disposition of who we are. And people start to recognize that you're one who speaks with grace and humility, not from an arrogant stepping stool that, that looks down on others and says, how could you not get this, you moron? But instead, with grace and humility, saying, I know why you don't get it, because I didn't get it either. And then lastly, I would say, the way that we say this to other people is with integrity. You know, we've got a lot of prophets in this world who know what truth everyone else needs to live by and very rarely look in the mirror and say, what truth do I need to live by? How do I need to soften my heart for the things of the Lord? God, what are you trying to do in my life first? That whole dynamic of how can I go and point out, you've got a speck in your eye and they're like, yeah, but you've got this gigantic log sticking out of yours. Has anybody talked to you about that yet? When we approach other people with an integrity that says, I am going through this too and I'm needing work in my life all the time. Not a false integrity. Hey, listen, I, I know I'm the chiefest of sinners too. But in a very specific way, listen, I'm going to talk to you about something because it's something that's been near and dear to me because I really failed at this. And unfortunately, I see you going down the same road and we need to talk about this. It doesn't mean that the listener is going to enjoy the conversation. It doesn't mean that it won't sting. But you're not complicating the problem by also approaching it with arrogance or with sin. And that's how somebody who, uh, that's how you become able to teach in the moment. Being able to teach is about balance. It's that convergence of skills, the things that you know how to do well because of your background or your training, but it's also a blended with wisdom, time and maturity, approaching at the right pace. Everyone is a teacher, whether we like it or not. You are teaching somebody something. So it's time to stop and think about what am I teaching them? Why am I teaching it the way that I am? What needs to change inside of here that will allow me to teach the right things? So the question is, will you be available to teach? Will you be available to allow the Lord to arrest your heart and to make those changes from the inside out? Would you stand, please? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, help us to let go of the corners of our life that we're trying to keep the lights dim. God, as you try to shine a light in those corners, you're doing it to change our hearts. 
Lord, we have such selfish pursuits so often about wanting respect or freedom or love or the things that stroke our egos. God, everything that we're seeing in the Scripture has so much sacrifice. We have to let go of so much. But thanks be to God, You have given us a Spirit which allows us to reduce the power and the influence of our flesh. But God, You ask us to give You our motivations, our desires, so that You can change them, so that we would want these things. I pray You would do that collectively and personally in this room this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.